Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've got a few verses we're going to read there from uh, verses 12 through verse 17 as we look at the third part, if you want to call this a series. I don't know that it necessarily is, but it's the same title three Sundays in a row, Living in the Spirit, Living in the Spirit part three. Starting at verse 12 of Romans chapter 8, God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient word reads, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Father, I ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now, Lord, as we um, take some time and reflect upon these words, I do pray that by your power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate this text for us so that we can understand it. And Lord, not just to understand it, but also to know how to apply it. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Living in the Spirit, part three. Yesterday, as we were here working, I was talking to a young man, name will not be mentioned, and I said that often, uh, I, said, I think the question was, is, are, is your sermon done? Something to that effect, and I was like, no, the sermon's done, but I always have to have an introduction and a closing, and I write that last, right? I mean, we don't want to build the front porch first and then the house we got to build the house, and then we add the front porch on it. And so I said, I'm still working on that. I'm not sure where I'm going to go with the introduction or the closing. And he said, well, just, just jump right in. Just jump right into the text. And so I think that's what I'm going to do this morning. I have no introduction. I'm going to jump right into the text. And uh, because what can I have to say other than this? And so jumping right in, verse 12. If you look at verse 12 and 13, you see it there in your outline. I have it labeled as the charge. The charge that we are being given in living in the Spirit. He starts out with that. He says that, so then, brothers, we are under obligation. And if we pause right there for a moment, we will understand and we will see that it's not telling us that we are not under obligation. Every single man and woman, all of us are under obligation to something. And he tells us we're either under obligation to the flesh. And though Paul seems to lose his train of thought. Uh, here, uh, as he, he never kind of says that part, we're in an obligation to the flesh or to the spirit. He doesn't mention the spirit, but he has done that earlier. And here he wants to emphasize that we are not uh, under obligation to the flesh. We are under obligation to the spirit. But he wants to hone in on this idea because this is the charge that we are under obligation. And we are under obligation to something and not to the flesh. In these two verses, which I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but in these two verses, there's really a key word that I want to focus on and draw your attention to this morning. It's one word in Greek, but it's multiple words in English, and it's found in verse 13 where it says, you are putting to death. Now, it depends upon your translation. Your translation may, something like, may say something like, you put to death. You put to death. But 
often in our translation, what happens is we try to clean it up so it flows nicely in English and we lose some of the nuances of it. Not that that's incorrect, but I think if we, we look at the sense that Paul wants to have for us, and that is that you are putting to death. This is active. This takes involvement. This is something that we are doing not just once and done. It's not just get it over with and you put it to death and then you move on. No, you are putting to death. It's something that you continually do is putting to death the deeds of the body, the deeds that the things within our body that draw our attention or distract us away from God, if you will. And these things you must continually and always be putting to death. It is an ongoing thing. It is never ending. It is our involvement. It is our action. And it is also our struggle as we continue to put to death those things within our body, within our natural, as a natural man or woman, the things that we are drawn towards that we know lead us from Christ. We need to align with Christ and be continually and always putting to death those things that distract us. One definition of the the single word that's translated in multiple words here to our English is just to stop an activity. And I like this, stop an activity with lethal determination, with lethal determination. Another definition would give us to cause total cessation of an activity, completely stop. Uh, but, the, but the one that I think uh, gives us the best sense of what Paul has in mind in the context of not just Romans 8, but in all of Romans, is to cease completely from an activity with implication of extreme measures, extreme measures taken. Why? To guarantee a cessation has occurred. Take extreme measures to make sure that whatever it is within ourselves that, that trips us up, our temptation, if you will, that we are doing everything within our ability to put to death those things. Often we will hear stuff like... Um, we will hear people say things like, well, it's just, it's just my hang-up, or it's just, what, what, it's, just, it's just my vice, or it's my thorn in the flesh. Or we may say, well, God created me in such and such a way, so obviously God loves me, and so I just need to go ahead and indulge in whatever that may be, and just you go with it. To put to death is something that isn't pleasant, right? To put to death something within us <clears throat> that is tripping us up does take an effort and it's not comfortable on our part. We struggle with our sins, and we also understand that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love that verse, but it doesn't give us, it doesn't give us a pass to continue or to forego the ongoing struggle. I like the proverb, and Peter quotes the proverb, but I will use it from Proverbs 26, 11. I think it's 2 Peter 2.22 maybe where he quotes it. And he says this, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Not a pleasant imagery, isn't it? The things that we turn to constantly. I can be just like a dog. And I could paint a picture. We have dogs and we've seen this in action and there's nothing pleasant about it. Why do they do that? And it's where they're saying. Why do we continually to be allowed us, allow ourselves to be tripped up and to return to the very thing that we know 
is not God's desire for us. How about you? Have you already? Will you take this charge that Paul is starting here with this morning seriously and battle to put to death those things within you that are tripping you up or that may trip you up? I want to go to Matthew chapter 29. In Matthew chapter 20, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, it's a Sermon on the Mount. And you know, for us as, as Mennonites or Anabaptists, we take uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we adhere to those very seriously. We, those are important to us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 29, Jesus, Jesus tells us this. After he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he back and forth, he goes, and then he, he sums it up with this in verse 29. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble or trips you up, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body and then for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In verse 30, he doubles down on it. And he says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your body parts and then for your whole body to go into hell. And that is extreme language, and that is exactly, I believe, what is Paul is asking of us or really commanding of us. That is the charge that we have. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, and when Jesus talks about a right eye and a right hand, there is significance in the word right. That is the dominant hand. That is the dominant eye. That is what is most important at the right, correct? And Jesus is saying, even if whatever it is is causing you to sin, take the extreme measures that you need to dispel it, to fight back. And I believe as we go into the living in the spirit, that if we want to be living in the spirit, we must be putting to death the body that is constantly wants to trip us up and constantly goes anti or goes against or contrary to what the Spirit is leading. It is very difficult to live in the Spirit while we're also indulging or not constantly battling those sins within our life that trip, trip us up. So second, I want you to notice in verse 14, We've seen the charge in verse 1, or verse uh, 12 and 13. And now in verse 14, we see that the Spirit leads. The Spirit leads. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. To these are the sons of God. So when we think about being led by the Spirit, what does it look like or mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to start with to be led by the Spirit. We must have a love for God. We must love God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says that you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus himself quotes this, this command here in Deuteronomy when he has someone says, Lord, what, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing, right? And he quotes this. What is the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he says, the second is like it, and that is that you love your neighbor 
as yourself. That you love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what, what Jesus is saying here, and he's adding on that you love your neighbor as yourself, is because we can say that we love God. We can say that we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. But to say that and not live it out and not love my neighbor as myself, I think is a slap in the face to the first by saying we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. A word or a statement is pointless without action, right? This is the whole letter of James that James is talking about because we've got people that are saying we love God. James is not arguing with Paul by faith alone and Christ alone is revealed in Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. That's not what Paul is or James is arguing with. But James is arguing with those who are saying, I have the Shema. I love the Lord my God with all my heart but the things that I'm doing are contrary to that and James is saying listen you can say that all you want but faith without works how do I know that he says no I want to see your faith by your works not that works saves us but the works are evident of that I want to go to uh, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter this just came to mind this morning so I don't have this cross reference in your scriptures for you but, but in Revelation chapter 2, uh, we, have the, we have the beginning of uh, the, the, the revelation, right? And it goes to these churches. These are real seven churches. Uh, they're not some fictitious or whatever church. They are real churches, of course. And in Revelation chapter 2, uh, where, where, where Jesus there told John, said, John, get out your, your, your quill, get out your pen, I've got something to say to you that I want you to record for these churches. And it starts out with the message to the church at Ephesus. And starting at verse 2, Jesus tells John, write this down. And he says this, for I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. I think we must stop there just for a moment and understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there are those within the church. This is a church at Ephesus. It was probably house churches. And so it was probably many churches spread out through Ephesus, written to the elder of each one of those house churches. But the message is the same. And that is that this is, this is a good thing. I know your deeds. I know you toil. I know you work. Diff- you're steadfast. Perseverance, steadfast. Steadfast is probably a better word. That you are steadfastly not tolerating people who preach a false gospel, who teach false things. And he says, you found them to be false. We must do this very same thing. Just because somebody says, I love God, or just because somebody says, I am being led by the Spirit, we don't take their word for it, not that we call them a liar, but we must test all things. And that's what Jesus is telling John to record here. And he continues in verse 3. He says, and you have perseverance. And you have endured for my name's sake. And you have not going, go, uh, grown weary. And Jesus is commending them and congratulating them and encouraging them to continue to root out false teachers that are among them. What a great word that we have today. I take great encouragement from those words that we must do that. But, that's right, Jesus doesn't stop there and he adds a but. 
He says, but I have this against you. Listen, you have done all these great things. You are faithful and you're not letting up. You're battling those who are false teaching, but I have this against you. What is it? That you have lost your first love. You have lost your love for me. You've been so focused. This is for me this now this morning. As I was convicted, this is for you have lost your love for me. You have lost your love for your people, for people. You have lost what is most important, and that is people. You have lost being led by the Spirit is about loving people, about loving your neighbor as yourself. And you have loved your theology so much that you have lost your first love. Listen, that's a very danger. As much as somebody teaching false doctrine, somebody who can get so wrapped up, and you know how much I love theology. Somebody gets so wrapped up in thinking straight and thinking correctly. And just so you know, I'm not going to let up on that. <laughs> but we also got to make sure that we do it out of our love, first and foremost, for God. To be led by the Spirit is to love God above all, first and foremost. And then second. To be led by the Spirit is to love God. And to be led by the Spirit is to love God's Word. Is to love God's Word. I believe the Bible. Many people will say that. Yes, I believe the Bible. And they will do battle for the Bible, which every generation must do battle for the Bible. It's never done. But if we don't open our Bible, do we love it? If we don't read it, do we love it? We can pull our select verses out and, and make sure we volley back and forth in whatever theological argument may, we may have. But do we love God's word? Not, not, not this nice uh, Allen Bible and this goat skin leather bound by young blood over in the Netherlands. I'm a Bible geek. But do I love the words that are recorded in there because they are the words of God. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119, the longest psalm, says at verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And verse 11 is a one that we know quite well. Your word I have treasured in my heart. In the margin of my Bible, I have written why, of course. <laughs> why? That I may not sin against you. And it continues down that vein. We love God. We love God's word. Why? So that we can love God even more. Not in word, not in study, not in the theology alone. But that it will make sure that we stay in tuned and aligned with God. That our love for God does not grow cold. Does not grow cold. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, of course, we've got 3.16 that all scripture... All Scripture, and some like to say, well, when all Scripture was written, it was referring to the Old Testament. Certainly it was, but by way of inspiration and the Holy Spirit for us today, it's all 66 books. 
So all scripture is written and recorded. Why? It's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, for training. Then it goes on in chapter 4, verse uh, maybe 2. It says that, verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you. Paul gives another charge to Timothy. Verse 2 of chapter 4, why? To preach the word. To preach the word, Timothy. To preach God's word. Why? Because it is the only way we know we are for sure being led by the Spirit if it aligns with God's word. With God's word. If I may pick on somebody I call my friend, but I don't know that. Um, anyways. Andy Stanley gets himself in a pickle quite often, and uh, he finds himself in the news quite often. And, um, you know, he made a comment quite some time ago, which was interesting, and that is that we don't believe the Bible. Our faith isn't based on a Bible. Our faith isn't based on these 66 books, but our faith is based on an event. And I like that. But my response to Andy was, but outside of the book, how do we know about the event? How do we know about the event? There's no other place recorded. I know uh, 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 Josephus does record something, but that's been proven. That was added later by Christians. So there, there's only one place that we know about the event, and that is Scripture. And if we want to just choose the event and say the rest of the scriptures we may or may not want to believe, how can we even believe the event? You cannot separate any of the scriptures. And I might say to also pick on our own tribe, if you will, as Mennonites, as Anabaptists, we like Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We love to say we follow the red letters of the Bible, which is exactly why my Bible doesn't have red letters, because they're all red letters as the inspired word of God. We want to follow Jesus, and especially a few of the commands about love. And the rest of scriptures, hmm, we're kind of like Andy. We'll just be silent on those. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. To be led by the Spirit is to love all of God and is to love all of God's words. He also says in this verse, if we come back to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 14, he also says that all who are being led by the Spirit, these are what? These are the sons and daughters of God. These are the sons and daughters of God. Do you want to be a child of God who is led by the Spirit? You want to be, I can go to, uh, I, I love Ecclesiastes, especially as Ecclesiastes ends. In 12, 13, after Solomon, all that he's done, all the great things that he's done, and even lost his way. And as he came back, he concluded Ecclesiastes with what? The conclusion of it all is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's how we are sons and daughters of God. So many today want to get this reversed. And they want to say and teach that since I am a child of God, true, and God loves me, true, therefore, Jesus also tells me, follow my feelings, follow my dreams, follow my truth. God loves you. You're a child of God. 
the desires you have as long as they don't go against other folks or other people and, and do harm to others. Follow them. It's a good thing. Wrong. Our feelings will lead us astray every single time. We can only keep our feelings in line by following the Word of God. The Word of God. Which is one of the main functions of the Holy Spirit. Is to illuminate the text for us. To help us to understand what it is saying. So to be called a son of God is typically was reserved for an Israelite, right? For a, a Jew, right? They were the original sons of God, right? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, he says, Israel is my son. As he came to, Pharaoh, Moses came before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Why? Because Israel, God said, Israel is my son. These are my sons and daughters. Therefore, you will let them go. And now here in the New Testament, as progressive revelation continues as God unfolds his plan, now those who love God, follow his command, are also sons and daughters of God. It's not based upon an ethnicity, but it's based upon our desire for God and our love of his word. And so the Spirit leads us. And now also in verse 15, the Spirit liberates us. The Spirit liberates us. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit received. When did we receive the Spirit? At conversion. Right? We were ready. We've seen earlier in Romans that all who are Christian have the Spirit within. We receive the Spirit at conversion. And if you are, the, and so he says that you received a Spirit not of slavery. Here's the negative. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And if we think about the spirit, uh, 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 that we not receive the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, we're also reminded that the Son sets you free. You are free indeed. But I want to hone in a little bit on this idea of slavery and fear along with a word that's unique to Paul. Five times he uses it, three times in Romans, once in Ephesians, once in Galatians, this idea of adoption. Nowhere else do we see this. And Paul is pulling this in, and it goes alongside with being born again. But here Paul uses the analogy of adoption. And, uh, and if we turn to Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 2, a couple verses there that I want to, that I want to highlight because it's referring to Jesus. Of course, Hebrews is all about that, right? And so we look there, and it says, Therefore, in verse 14, since the children, since those who are God's people share in flesh and blood, they have the human, but they're human, right? They have humanity. They are, they are they're flesh and blood. He, Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same. Now, this is the NASB. I didn't check any other translations, but it's a bit clunky here, maybe. But did you catch that? That since, therefore, we are children of share in flesh, but he, Jesus himself, also partook of the same. Partook of what? Partook of the flesh and the blood. Again, why? Why did he do this? That through death, he, Jesus, might render powerless him who had power over death, who had power of death. Who? He tells us. The devil. Verse 15. And might set free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. Listen to this. 
subject to slavery all of their lives. All of their lives. Come back to Romans. Come back to Romans in our verse here in 15, where Paul is saying, listen, you did not receive this spirit of slavery that leads to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. You are now flesh and blood, so to speak, of your heavenly father. You too now, doesn't matter if you're an Israelite, if you're a natural born Jew, then none of that matters anymore. As adopted sons and daughters, you have full inclusion. Do we understand this? I maybe um, Ephesians chapter one verse five tells us that um, that He, God, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself. There's, there's this thing about fear, and this is, this is why I find the pee of the tulip, if that makes any sense to you, so important. And if it doesn't, the perseverance of the saints, the idea that we are eternally secure and saved. There, there's this idea sometimes that we can live within this spirit of fear, that we can lose our salvation, that we can lose our relationship with Christ. Um, maybe to get a bit personal, we all bring baggage with us or we all bring maybe biases or ways we think with us. And as we think about adoption and slavery of fear and those types of things, um, my mom was adopted. She was adopted from Grantsville, Maryland, from a nice Mennonite home. They're an orphanage. She was laid on the doorstep with a name pinned to her chest. That's all they know about her. An Amish family in Ohio couldn't have any children, went and adopted her from this orphanage. Uh, and then later on, they could have some children. And mom always wrestled with that fear of adoption. She never understood why somebody would come to the house and check up on her and not on her siblings. And she was always in this fear of, do my parents love me? Are they looking to send me back? And there was a breakdown of communication there without, without my grandparents, no doubt. And she always lived with this idea of this fear. And this fear that, that I have to do what's right, that I have to obey my father or I may be sent back. Or this person that's coming to check up on me at school, coming to check up on me in the home and only me, evidently, may take me back or may take me away. She didn't even realize that she was adopted, but she didn't understand those things. This was with mom her whole life, her whole life. And, and um, <clears throat> there was a time in... My life, I guess it was 2009, I think mom passed away, um, but 2007, 8, 9, difficult years, and I had a lot of time off, and um, mom was dying of cancer, and as she was home and before she got too bad, um, I would spend hours with mom in her house, and she always had this question, James, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I cannot tell you. How many hours we would search and go through the scriptures to convince her, Mom, you are saved. And to go through this, you are loved by your heavenly Father. He's not going to reject you at the end of your life. As mom got worse and worse with cancer, we brought her home. 
Uh, and because of my brother and his involvement with the hospital, we could bring her home intubated and all that, which is not heard of. But nonetheless, it could be arranged, and we had to take care of everything for her there. But I remember sitting up with her at night, and one night she was in a coma, and as I was sucking out her tube and some different things, you had to do that with unintubated right and stuff like that. It was just, but the one night, everything was kind of peaceful, and Mom was just laying there uh, in, in the coma, and her eyes, she hadn't moved or opened for days, and her eyes just pop open just like this, just like that. And I just sat there. I just sat there. Mom got it at that moment. She never did come out of that coma, but within a day, she was passed. She was gone. I got to hold her hand when she left. So it gets kind of personal for me when people want to say that our Heavenly Father may not love us and may reject us. That is, that is the worst thing that can be taught. Your Heavenly Father loves you and will never, ever reject you. I have a grandbaby that you all know. Have I told you about my grandbaby lately? <laughs> Evidently I have. I haven't told you about my grandson yet, right? Now, he's, he's not born yet, but he's here. I got to see some pictures of him. And, and this month, uh, Lord willing, I will get to hold him. But I guarantee you. Right, Linda? I guarantee you, no matter what these grandchildren may do, and all you have grandchildren, there is nothing that Eddie can do, and I'm not sure what grandson will be called yet. I probably know, but I don't remember. But I guarantee you there is nothing that she can tell me or do to me that is going to make me reject her. Nothing. She can say she hates me all her life, and I'm going to smile and just give her a hug. If I can do that, how much more? Our Heavenly Father. How much more? If you know your children, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, you don't give them a snake or a rock, do you, Jesus says? How much more? Well, your Heavenly Father loves you. Galatians 4. We don't really have time to turn there. You can turn there yourself. It continues on this idea of what's taught of adoption and Abba, Father, and crying out to our Heavenly Father. And not just coming and saying, Dad's coming home from work. What kind of mood's he in tonight? No. Not with a whisper. But it's a crying out. Not with a spirit of timidity. But Abba, Father, with boldness and with assurance that we can come to our heavenly Father. Let's move on to verse 16. The Spirit confirms. The Spirit confirms His Spirit within us. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you get that? The Spirit, capital S, your translation should have it. Our Spirit, a small s, our Spirit with, the, with God's Spirit confirms within us. Can we prove that? Can I pull out a documentation that says, look, here's my birth certificate? No, can't do that. But there's something within you, is there not? that testifies to the fact that you are indeed a son or daughter of your heavenly Father. John, 1 John 5, 13 wrote this. These things, John says, I have written to you. Why did you write them, John? So that you may know that you can have eternal life. You can have assurance of your eternal life. 
And if we were just going to do a quick study through 1 John, we would see the things that John laid out. If you walk in the light, if we confess our sins, if we love our brothers and sisters, if we do not love the world, if we do not deny the Son, if we do not practice sin, if we keep all his commandments, John isn't giving these things as if you do those, these things will save you. Not at all. It's not by works. It's by faith alone. But what John is saying, if you are indeed a son and daughter of John, these are the things, these are the external things that are going to be evident within you that you are a son or a daughter of God. But we are very good. I was very good at faking it, right? And so I can, these things can be manifested within me. So it's not these things that are evident alone. But John says, these are the things that are going to be there. That's externally, but internally we have it here in Romans that our spirit connects with the heavenly spirit that we are indeed sons and daughters of God. Well, if we were going to look at now verse, if we're going to look at verse 17, I'm not going to spend any time in verse 17. We're going to go here next week. I really think verse 17 starts a new paragraph, though the Bible here says it. it's the end of this paragraph. I, I disagree, but nonetheless... It says that, and if children, heirs, heirs also of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, what? So that what? So that we may be glorified with him. That's the outcome of verse 17, being led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit, we have the charge. The Spirit leads us. <clears throat> the Spirit confirms it within us. And here we have the outcome of that, and that is, the outcome of that is glorification. It's living in the Spirit, the outcome of dying to the flesh, the outcome of not following after the flesh, the, the outcome of, of, of following, the God, following the Spirit, loving God, loving His commandments, loving His Word, is glorification, the promise of eternal life. Glorification is just a fancy word for perfection, right? That we will all hope to find and meet one day. And so we're going to leave it there for today. But if there's one thing that I, and you know this is something that I, I, I constantly talk about, but as that you can know, your heavenly father loves you and that you can know that you are secure that you know that no matter what there are times when you trip up and you continue to battle and you continue to deny the flesh as paul is saying here but you also know that those things are not going to separate you from your heavenly father you are secure you are loved you are a son and a daughter of god father i thank you this this morning, Lord, I, I, I don't know where these words landed or didn't land, but I'm convinced that your spirit within your sons and daughters brings to mind exactly what we needed to hear this morning. And so I pray, Father, as we focus upon our internal spirit and what you may be asking or saying of us. Father, I do pray first and foremost, if there's somebody who has denied you, somebody who is not following you, willfully rejecting you, I pray, Lord, that you would turn their heart, turn their heart to you for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. But, Father, if there's somebody here who's struggling with a fear of dying and you rejecting them, Lord, I pray that you would dispel that evil from their mind, that you would liberate their soul and their spirit, knowing that they are eternally secure in you.
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.